Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Angelica Beener, and this is Milestones, a podcast where my special guests and I dive deeply into musical and cultural landmarks that are celebrating a milestone year. On this very special episode, we're celebrating the life and legacy of the incomparable Ramsey Lewis on the eve of his 88th anniversary. And I am so excited to be joined by two very special guests. Aaron Cohen teaches humanities at City College of Chicago and writes for numerous publications, including Downbeat, Chicago Tribune, and Chicago Reader. He is the author of Moving On Up, Chicago Soul and Black Cultural Power and Amazing Grace. Cohen has been a national endowment for the humanities public scholar and is a two-time recipient of the Deems Taylor Award for Outstanding Music Writing from ASCAP. Most recently, he co-authored with Ramsey Lewis, Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in Music, which came out last week. I am also so privileged to be joined by Mr. Lewis's wife, partner, muse, and closest confidant, Mrs. Jan Lewis. Thank you both for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Yes, yes. You know, Aaron, I have to tell you, you gave me my first opportunity to write for Downbeat about a decade ago. I don't know if you remember that. Um, And I want to thank you for that, by the way. It was a book review for Gil Scott Heron's memoir, The Last Holiday. And Heron had passed away only about eight months before that book was released in January of 2012. And I would be remiss to ignore the fact that it's, it's interesting that we now sit together for the first time to talk about a book also posthumously published. But this time you are the co-author. And so I want to start by asking you, I'm, I'm sure the journey must have meant so much to you uh, when Mr. Lewis was physically here. But what is the significance or the responsibility even now of getting this work into the world when the person is no longer with us? Does it change the mission in any way? Well, first of all, I want to say what a joy it was to work with Ramsey Lewis and with Jan Lewis. It was an enormous responsibility to be invited into their lives, invited into their lovely home, and to help Ramsey tell his story and quite an incredible story. It's also a big responsibility. And I knew at the time when we started working on the project, what a big responsibility it was to help Ramsey Lewis tell his story when he was with us, because he had such an incredible life. And we can talk quite a lot about his life and incredible music too. And of course, we'll be talking about his musical legacy. But uh, with his passing, I, I felt it's also important to let the world know not just his story, but how his story will endure and continue to influence young people and older people, people who knew his work, people who knew him, people who aren't even born yet to learn about his music and learn about his life and what a great example he set for so many people. Mm, Yeah. And, and how, how did the work begin? Did, did did you know each other well beforehand, or how did how did the connection happen? Other than you being two Chicago guys. <laughs> well, of course, us being two Chicago guys, I, I knew his music very well, and I had the great opportunity to see him perform on many occasions. Being Chicagoans, I met him for the first time, and I reminded uh, Ramsey of this in December 1998. We were part of a Chicago delegation to the Havana International Jazz Festival. Uh, Jan, you were there too. 
And uh, Ramsey, of course, went as a performer with his trio, and I went to cover the event for Downbeat. So that's when I met him. And I also went to when he had a television, jazz television show for a little bit here on public television. And by that time, I was an editor at Downbeat. So I would go to the taping to watch the tapings. But I never interviewed uh, Ramsey Lewis before working on this book because it was always the people who were above me in rank for whatever publication I was working for who had the great opportunity to speak with Ramsey Lewis. So when I was at uh, Downbeat, it was uh, my boss, the publisher, who would interview Ramsey and writing for the Tribune. It was uh, Howard Reich, the senior Tribune staff writer who would interview Ramsey. So I never got the chance to interview him before because I was too low in the pecking order in terms of uh, access to Mr. Lewis. So um, it was not until working on this book that we sat down and, and spoke as interviews. Wow. I love that. I love that story. Um, starting with you, Jan, I'd love to ask you both um, about the timing of this book, uh, Mr. Lewis's distinguished career spanning six decades, over 80 albums, huge commercial success, three Grammys, an NEA Jazz Master. I mean, you have some artists who, you know, don't have 10 years under their belt in this industry and they're writing some sort of memoir or something like that. Um, what was it about the timing and, and why was now the time? Well, it's interesting because um, for years I tried to get him to do a book and other people did too. And he always said he didn't have anything to say. He didn't think that what he said, you know, not that it wasn't important, but that he just didn't see a need for it. And then I think, um, I don't know, our manager, Brett Steele, would bring it up periodically, but it hadn't been for a long time. And then I can't remember why he did, um, I don't know when it was, 2020. One, I guess it was. And um, and he said that he had found a publisher and then he had a couple of writers. And so this time, I don't know why Ramsey was more accessible to it, but or amenable to it. But um, we read some stuff that that uh, Aaron had written and really liked it and liked the fact he was in Chicago. And um, and so Ramsey said, yeah, he said, I'll do it. So I said, well, great. I mean, it surprised me, but I was very happy. And it was just a great collaboration between the two of them. Yeah, you know, and and it makes you wonder, you know, in hindsight, you know, sometimes we don't consciously know why we're doing something, but maybe subconsciously our spirit mm -hmm. is telling us that now's the time. And wow, after reading this book twice, I read it twice. I am I'm just so grateful um, that, he shared, as he did, it seems, all of his life, uh, shared so much of his time uh, with with others, for others, for our for our benefit. So it's just very special, and and I just again want to thank you both for um, for for working with him to to make that happen. Uh, I just have one thing to say that um, I very much appreciate how Aaron did this because he he honestly portrayed the book that Ramsey wanted. And uh, <laughs> so he just did a wonderful job. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. Excuse me. This may ha happen periodically. 
Well, I think that's the thing. Um, it's only been eight months, and this is all very, very raw and new. And um, take your time, and we can, we can, we can be as gentle and as however this needs to go for you, for both of you. Um, well, thank you, uh, thank you, Angela, and thank you very much, uh, Jan. Thank you. I, I I can't add to that. I mean, just thank you very much for saying so. I want to I want to go back a bit, um, Aaron, because you, you wrote a book, as I said in the intro, in twenty twenty, titled "Move On Up: Chicago Soul Music and, and Black Cultural Power," um, which is an incredible book. I haven't gotten through all of it, but I've gotten through a lot of it, and it's it's amazing. And um, I'd read an interview that you'd done where you basically said that, comparatively speaking to maybe a city like Detroit. Um, there was a void in the narrative when it came to Chicago um, and those artists who created such profound music that was also deeply invested in social music, uh, so, excuse me, social movements um, of our lifetime. So in doing that work, did you become more aware of, of Mr. Lewis's impact uh, as it pertained to, to um, activism and things like that? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things about uh, soul music in Chicago was also the musical innovations that were present. And uh, Ramsey Lewis was very much a part of that through his collaboration with uh, Charles Stepney. But I think another interesting thing about uh, soul music in Chicago was this sense of empowerment, a sense of moving forward as individuals as well as as collaborators and running one's own business running one's own publishing using the examples of uh, many uh, leaders uh, civic leaders political leaders activists and even people who weren't out there um you know carrying signs or uh, organizing marches were very much part of that whole empowerment and Ramsey Lewis certainly embodied that um, in terms of the way he conducted his business, uh, the way he lived his life, the way he was a mentor to others. Um, you know, all of that was going on in soul music in Chicago and was going on with Ramsey Lewis as well. And, you know, Ramsey Lewis was also, he was older than Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler, but came from that same neighborhood of Cabrini Green. And, you know, what that neighborhood uh, when Ramsey Lewis was growing up there, and then a few years later when Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler were growing up there, and the um, initiatives that people who were artistically minded had to um, go through to get their work out there, to get themselves out there, to survive, not just survive, but to really thrive. Um, with all these things I was had in my mind while working on Move On Up and while speaking with Ramsey Lewis for Gentlemen of Jazz. Mm-hmm. And Jan, speaking of activism and social movements, um, yeah, I, in the book, I, I found it interesting that he was a lot more invested than maybe folks would have realized. Was he private about that kind of work? I, I mean, he talks about his relationship with Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama and the Chicago Urban League and um, even this wonderful story, of, which is sort of the apex, I feel like, of this activism piece that threads through the book where he does that uh, symphony for Lincoln's bicentennial. And he talks about you sort of telling him to go deeper, go darker, you know, go more intense in, in the, um, I think it was the emancipation 
movement, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Slavery, yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Was that something that he was more private about? Did he, how did he feel about going deep? Well, he he was very um, vocal privately, but he didn't, he, he wasn't very demonstrative outwardly um, to the media or whatever, because I think he, he felt it was um, his audience was a broad audience and he didn't want to um, focus on, you know, any one part of it that would um, alienate anybody. He had his definite views, but he thought that was separate from his performances and his music um, abilities. Also, this this book also in many ways, it, it's like a love letter to Chicago. And I'd love to get both of your perspectives of how essential Chicago is to to Ramsey's story. Um, because at a certain point in his career, obviously he achieves tremendous status. Um, and I think even hints that, you know, I could have gone to New York, could have gone to LA, which is what a lot of people who, you know, once they reach that particular threshold of just huge crossover success, which I'd, I'd love to talk to you about in a little bit, but he stayed in Chicago. He made a, a purposeful decision to stay in Chicago. How do you think that impacted his work and his legacy? Aaron, you get to start with you. Oh, okay. Uh, well, in Chicago, he could have a home, raise a family, um, all of those you know things that need to be done. He could also have a, a place where he was away from the you know constant gaze of the media and the constant need to um, be in the studio every day. But that being said, in Chicago, back in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and today in the year 2023, so many great musicians here in Chicago. And Ramsey, you know, knew that he could always find really great jazz musicians to work with in his group and have this group be a Chicago group. And Ramsey Lewis's music uh, kept changing. It kept evolving. It kept going through changes. And he could find... uh, new younger musicians with their own ideas that would inform his ideas and he could not just lead them and mentor them but also uh, take in some of their ideas here in chicago great recording studios here as well um and uh, if if he had chosen to do commercial work he could have done so he didn't want to but he could have done that here in chicago um he could incorporate himself here i mean everything that a top-ranked musician like Ramsey Lewis could do. He could do here in Chicago. And then later in life, when he was doing symphonic works and classically informed works that brought in uh, jazz improvisation with composition, he found collaborators and presenters here in Chicago could do that. So the city had for him everything that he needed as an artist, and he always knew that. And he could also have a really nice style of life here as well. Mm-hmm. Jan, do you want to add to that? Uh, yes, he um, he always felt that Chicago uh, was very good to him. And so he really liked, he loved the city, first of all, and, and um, never thought about living anywhere else. Um, as you said, a lot of musicians went to New York and L.A., um, but I think he realized that a lot of the musicians who went to New York 
started to pick up a New York kind of um, style. And um, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to, and I think it was a natural thing. I don't think it was, you know, thing that people tried to do. Um, but he just liked, he just liked the city. And I think he, um, his style was unique because he had classical training. He had gospel and jazz. And that's, I think, what kind of set him apart from a lot of other musicians. And, um, and he cultivated that. And plus, as Aaron said, you know, all of the musicians he ever worked with were just fabulous. I mean, they were all such gentlemen and nice people. And um, it was a wonderful group to travel with and, and for him to collaborate with. And so, you know, Chicago had everything he needed. Wow. Yeah. And you talk about those early roots, the gospel, um, the classical training, and how that was so, I mean, it just, you know, was infiltrated. It infiltrated all of his, you know, work. But I'd love to talk about those those first teachers. Uh, he talks about Miss Ernestine and then uh, Miss Mendelssohn. What what would you say is was the the impact of their contribution? These two women, um, which was I thought also really cool that it was, you know, really it, along with his parents who were uh, in the church. Uh, his mother was a singer. His father a, 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 a director, a choir director. What did those early influences? How did they impact him? Um, <clears throat> well, it, it, the story was that his sister got to. They wanted his sister to take piano lessons, and he decided that everything Lucille did, he wanted to do too. So Ramsey started taking them lessons with uh, Ernestine Bruce and. Um, she realized that Lucille had uh, talents elsewhere, but little Ramsey should should stay. And um, and I think she, you know, she taught him everything she could. And and uh, then Dorothy Mendelssohn came in the picture and uh, was extremely influential in his life. Um, but he he I think I don't remember him ever really working with uh, with men um, in that capacity because there was another woman years later, Eloise Neva or Neva, I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name, but she was a piano coach and he used to go to her um, as a very established musician. He would go to her pianist. He would go to her and um, I mean, she wasn't easy on him. You know, she, uh, but he, he went, we, I remember going with him and we'd go to all these sessions and, and she just, kept him, you know, in the straight and narrow where he needed to be. So I think women have been very instrumental in his um, de development. They, of course, you know, taught him the classical repertoire and the classical tradition. And then later on, um, as, as Jan said, you know, classical training in terms of working on his hands and the discipline and how to not fall into the same patterns that he had been that any you know person would fall into if they've been doing something for a long time i think that also speaks to and this is something from ramsey's you know i didn't know him obviously as a child but what the way he remembered his childhood and up through his entire life was if he could learn from somebody he would and it didn't matter who the person was, what their background was, 
where they were what they were telling him if this was something that he could learn something he could absorb something that he knew would help his art help his training help his discipline he would do it and he was certainly incredibly confident about his abilities incredibly confident about his artistry but that didn't prevent him from continuing to seek teachers to seek people who could guide him and help him and collaborate with him and that really was a lifetime of learning which is so important it really is i mean reading the book the, there's one thing that shines through and that's his um humility and and as you as you were both saying you know like you, it didn't matter if you had something that he could learn from there was no it seemingly there was no sort of hierarchy um I love how in the earlier uh, part of the book, he talks about meeting Wallace Burton, the founder of the Clefts, and he gets a, a different kind of education, musical education, a jazz education. How, how important was that, that meeting? Um, because he talks about Earl Father Hines and Art Tatum and uh, I think Errol Garner and, and some of these, uh, Bud Powell, but, but really, uh, and how he would send him and go listen to records and things like that. Um, is it's it's a very interesting way to come into the fold of jazz when you have a, a classical uh, background and a gospel background. Um, what what did he share with you? Can you tell us more about that relationship? Because obviously that sort of catapults him into the first Ramsey Lewis trio. Well, <clears throat> uh, I'll just say briefly that uh, if it hadn't been for Wallace Burton. I don't know where his career would have gone because he, his parents were wanting him to go the classical um, route, and he was fine with that. He was fine with, you know, he was a very easy guy. And um, but um, if Wallace Burton hadn't kind of taken him under his wing, and you know, told him after his first session with him that Ramsey didn't know what they were playing or anything that, um, you know, come over to my house and let me show you some things and start listening to them. And it just opened up a whole new world for him. And it, he, I think if it hadn't been for Wallace, I'm not sure how it would have, uh, how it would have developed. Wow. Yes, it's one thing to listen to jazz records. It's another thing to play jazz for an audience. And, you know, Ramsey, young age, very young age, was, you know, thrown into a using a metaphor thrown into the deep end of the pool uh mm -hmm. in his first time swimming and uh you know everything is completely different from playing in a church playing in a classical recital to playing uh for a jazz audience and this was also at a time too uh you know don't forget when uh jazz audiences were not just sitting in seats patiently waiting for the performance to end so they can clap this is when people were dancing getting up this was when jazz was music that was getting the audience constantly physically engaged with the music so trying to imagine you know being a young person never being in this position before as a player um how difficult and challenging it was but again that also speaks to ramsey lewis's open-mindedness here's a new situation something i can learn from something I can absorb and see where it takes me. And that was, again, Ramsey Lewis as a teenager all the way through his entire life. Mm -hmm. 
And it mm-hmm. seems evident in his discography. He gets uh, along with, actually, I want to back up for a second because I was so, I was like, oh my gosh, Red Hope is, is his words in the book, you know. Um, there are a lot of firsthand accounts in this book from people like Red Holt, Verdine White, uh, Byron Gregory, um, his children, yourself, Jan. Um, we don't usually see that, not laid out like that in in biograph- in autobiographies. Usually it's the, the, um, the subject's recollections and maybe some quotes from maybe something that was published a long time ago. But to have these um, sort of firsthand accounts uh, weaved into his his work i mean that that just feels very gracious to me as someone who's writing their story that that um even when there was some maybe disagreement of, of, of recollection while well, i felt this way or read maybe red Holt felt that way um i want to ask you what that process was like of getting all of those other voices into the book and and deciding who to talk to what was that process well Right from the very beginning, uh, Ramsey and I, uh, and Jan too, felt that it was important to include other voices. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, you know, every time Ramsey made a record, there were people with their different contributions as composers, players, performers. So it would make for a more interesting story to get different perspectives, different angles as to how people worked and what they contributed to this process. Uh, there were also some times uh, when these were there were some conflicts, and uh, every every story has conflict. And uh, so I felt that was also something where it was important to bring in other uh, perspectives to these conflicts. And it says a lot for uh, Ramsey and um his um, perspective and his um, personality that he was, Agree. He agreed to other voices coming in, even ones that might have disagreed with something that might have happened. He did not change anybody's perspective. He did not change what people said about a certain situation. Um, it's, it's funny, actually. One one book that a jazz a memoir that does include other voices was um, Art Pepper's uh, Straight Life, and it's funny because I mean I never met Art Pepper, but completely different personality, a completely I mean the total opposite end of the human perspective, you know the the, the human experience. Um, but again, that was another one where other voices were included. Um, mm. So not unprecedented <laughs> for an autobiography or for a memoir. But Ramsey mm-hmm. and I felt it was certainly part of the story, and also too I think one of the things about Ramsey's groups, especially in the 70s, was that they were such a, a mixture of interesting personalities, um, you know, from the classically trained, very uh, formal, soft-spoken uh, Ramsey Lewis to uh, characters like the composer and percussionist Durf Recklaw, who was completely different, um, you know, wild, funny off-the-wall uh, guy, um, Byron Gregory, the guitarist. And so just these different personalities in these groups that I thought made for such a fun story. Um, and, you know, an older Ramsey Lewis with these, you know, crazier young guys working with him. What was that all about? Well, here it is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and um, when when he was criticized or when they were, he read reviews, he didn't read a, a lot of reviews, but um, if, you know, if he did get some criticism from someone, he never it never really bothered him. Um, mm. He 
he just the 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 ultimate thing he'd finally end up saying is, let them get up here and do what I do, and then we'll talk about it. And so, you know, he said, well, that's their opinion. That's what they maybe they saw that in that performance or whatever. But um, you know, it just never bothered him. So I'm not surprised that he, you know, was felt that way throughout this entire book that everyone who Aaron talked to, you know, was able to to really be honest and say what they said. And he reflected that in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, let's get into a little bit of that because um, he signs with the clefts and uh, I, I, he joins the clefts in 52, gets the chess records deal in 56. And between 56 and 65, when the in crowd comes up and psh, career just flourishes, um, there, there, there was criticism, right? Like there was, uh, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about a little bit of the backlash um, and how much of that he did and, and didn't internalize, um, you know, and also the, there's that great manifesto in the liner notes of one of his records where he says, um, this is not an offering of third stream, mainstream, progressive, commercial, or funky jazz. This is the music that Red Hole, L.D. Young, and I love to play and make a living at was that sort of like um well I'll let you tell me what um how how did he feel about on the one hand I can't imagine it not being so exciting um you know having this this incredible success but then also maybe the backlash from purists or whomever well I'll, I'll start he um yeah he he definitely saw that and felt that uh, the, you know, what, what was, um, he was, he was just doing something different and, but for him, it was all about the music. It wasn't about what anybody wanted him to do or what, what, um, was expected of him. It was just about the music and he really didn't care. I don't think he ever, at least since I've known him, you know, it's never been an issue with him. So, um, I know there's still, you know, people who think he sold out or, you know, whatever, because he was crossed over. And uh, that's just something jazz musicians didn't do. Um, but, you know, it was kind of a surprise to them. It was that kind of a, the in crowd was a just a fun song. They just decided to put on the album and it just kind of took off. But, um, yeah, so, I, you know, he just didn't worry about critics. And there were so many interesting records he was making, um, you know, during that period, period before the in crowd. And I mean, number one, he was making a lot of records as he talked about. Albums, and, yeah. yeah. So that's you know, a lot of, and at a very young age too, um, yeah. making a lot of jazz albums, but he was also doing on, on some of them. Uh, and these are incredible musical advances, but uh, for instance, Bach to the blues where he's, combining his um, love for European classical music with jazz and gospel. Um, You know, he's doing it in these short song pieces. And, you know, these are short, um, very immediately enjoyable pieces. So, you know, at the time when there was this big, you know, third stream concept that, you know, classical and jazz combinations should be these, you know, big orchestral scope type Piece, pieces or albums, he was doing it a different way, a very unique way, a way that was certainly the Ramsey Lewis way, the Ramsey Lewis trio way. 
would also write about, you know, what he was gleaning from Russian composers, from, you know, Central European composers, what he was bringing in in terms of his gospel and, you know, blues uh, background in these very short pieces on Box of the Blues, which was really interesting and really stood out from what everybody else was doing. And this was, again, before his big uh, commercial hit. Um, you know, very interesting Christmas music, um, you know, very interesting uh, takes on, um, you know, Latin music. And, you know, again, this is all his doing it. And also with um, L.D. Young and Red Holt as well, a very unique group of musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would also collaborate with uh, other musicians in very interesting ways very early on. So they're doing a lot of different things, too. And I think they were so busy doing so many different things they didn't really have time to worry about how some people certainly not everybody felt about their music because their music was gaining in popularity and part of the book when ramsey lewis is talking about when the trio is starting to hit the road in a car they're driving from one end of the country to the other and you know playing for these audiences and their audiences are building um i don't really think they had time to worry about a few people who were detractors so to speak right Mm, mm, that's interesting and it's also interesting that i mean you talk about that catalog pre the in crowd i think it's like 12 albums or something like that 17 17 oh my goodness overnight successes after 17 albums yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love that i love that but but also that there's there's got to be some credit given to then to to chess as well, because I, I would imagine that, I mean, I've worked in the record business a little bit as well. And sometimes just artists wanting to do one album that may be a little different. And then there's this pushback. Um, but there seemed, uh, correct me, you know, or enlighten me more, please, about um, how important it was that he had the the uh, the backing of his label well it was uh to use a current term it was complicated um you know certainly uh chess records uh, supported uh what the ramsey lewis trio was doing uh chess records was supportive of other jazz artists too uh ahmad jamal being you know another case in point and um and they also were you know backing up what the ramsey lewis trio wanted to do with their recordings the uh, chess records was also influential in radio and in print media so certainly um, in terms of getting airplay in terms of getting uh reviews in magazines like downbeat and uh cash box and others and they got pretty good reviews in uh the jazz media at that time certainly you know chess being behind them was a big part of it but um you know it was still a record company and um you know uh, leonard chess phil chess were they completely honest with their artists uh were they completely um you know good to their artists well um you know there's a lot to that in terms of um different sides to that in terms mm-hmm. of um were they always fair were they always forthcoming with royalties and payments and um, you know, all of that. Well, I mean, that's not particularly, there's no easy answer to that one. You know, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, I don't remember him ever saying <clears throat> that anyone at chess wanted him to go in a certain direction or to to play this certain 
style or to, you know, no really direction. I thought it seemed like they just kind of, because they weren't really into, when he started there, uh, they had had um, blues and I'm not sure what else, but I know there were some blues artists. And so they were thinking about kind of branching out into jazz. And so they didn't really know anything about, uh, really about the music. And maybe that's why they let him, you know, just kind of do what they wanted to do. Thank heavens they did. Because yes. they, you know, yeah, it was very unique, very different. Sure. I mean, you know, Ramsey Lewis, he signs with Chess Records and it's the mid 50s. It's the late 50s. And there's Muddy Waters. There's Chuck Berry. There's Bo Diddley having big hits. Um, you know, Ramsey Lewis is with Chess in the early mid 60s. And then there's people like Jackie Ross and Fontella Bass having R&B hits. So there's these, you know, here's this jazz trio doing what they want to do. And the fact that, um, you know, Chess Records is having so much uh, success with their blues, early rock and roll, soul, um, you know, a, a bit of gospel as well. Um, you know, so they're, you know, doing, Chess is doing really well uh, financially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the Ramsey Lewis trio is part of this independent label juggernaut that's happening uh here in chicago um i think one of the interesting things too is um later in the 1960s when um you know ramsey lewis is getting into some very interesting concepts with charles stepney the composer and arranger and producer and richard evans and you know they're really stretching some things out compositionally they're stretching some things out with arranging and these things cost money to produce in terms of getting orchestras into the studio in terms of you know getting this big sound for jazz records too at that and that you know chess and uh it's cadet imprint are behind it uh you know they're they're behind it and they're letting them all this whole group of people do what they want to do on these records and these are great albums that resulted in it yeah absolutely yeah let, let's talk about that because we have the in crowd which I don't want to give the story away to our listeners because it's such a good story of, of how that happened. I'll just say it seemed fated in, in some way. Um, but is there anything that you want to say without saying too much about, I mean, because this really is um, in some ways, to me anyway, there's like pre-65 and then there's uh, this new chapter that will, that you kind of hinted at um, after the big success of the in crowd, there's also the dissolve of that trio and then enter Cleve Eaton and Maurice White. And like you said, Charles Stepney and Minnie Ripperton and all of these people. And I, I don't want to get into that, but before we turn that corner, <laughs> um, the in crowd, whoa. I, I think there's that, uh, I, I think it's a cliche. Um, so I can't say who said it originally that, you know, luck is when preparedness and opportunity meet. And so I don't want to give too much away with the story behind uh, the in crowd and its recording and its uh, incredible success. But I think that is an example of, um, you know, the preparedness, the trio having worked so hard together and having such a really great dialogue uh, among the three of them.
you know, so that's being prepared um, and being open-minded. Um, you know, as we were talking about Ramsey Lewis saying, oh, I can learn from this, I can use this. And then there's the opportunity to make this or do a live recording that includes this song. So that's what happened. Got know. it. <laughs> there's more to it, but yes, that's in the book. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, it's a great, great story. Um, one of the other things I think readers, certainly myself as a as an Earth, Wind, and Fire fan, are really going to be interested in is learning more about Ramsey Lewis's relationship with his longtime friend and and musical partner, uh, the founder of Earth, Wind, and Fire, Maurice White. Um, that relationship just I got emotional reading reading about their relationship and you know even the later years and the coming back together and things like that. Um, I mean, a lot of people may not even recognize that Maurice White was a drummer. We could just start there, <laughs> you know? I mean, let alone uh, Come to My Garden with Charles Stepney and all this amazing work that they did together. I mean, what was that like listening to those stories about that relationship? Well, I don't I don't want to sound like a, a record collector, but um, I, I think one of the great... you. On there's a, a Japanese uh, live recording of the Ramsey Lewis trio, and it was only released in Japan. Hopefully, it'll come out here. And this was when uh, Maurice White had been very acclimated into the group. And uh, I really feel that this is the best example of Maurice White's drumming as just, you know, what a great jazz drummer he was, what he was bringing in in terms of new ideas. And Maurice White was doing this because of Ramsey Lewis's encouragement. Ramsey Lewis was encouraging him to step forward. Ramsey Lewis and Cleveland Eaton, but especially Ramsey Lewis was encouraging Maurice White to, you know, oh, you have this kalimba. Go to the center of the stage and play it and the audience will love it. And, um, you know, so it was because of Ramsey Lewis's direction that uh, Maurice White stepped ahead. So on this uh, Japanese recording of the Ramsey Lewis trio, which I mentioned the discography, that's, you know, uh, if you want to hear Maurice White as drummer, hear him with the Ramsey Lewis trio, um, because with Earth, Wind & Fire, incredible, great, great group. But that was Maurice White as conceptualist, as composer, as singer, as leader, as producer. But purely as drummer, his best work, I think, was with the Ramsey Lewis trio. And um, But also, too, Ramsey Lewis mentored him in other things, as he talks about in the book, publishing and reading what you know helping him you know pick out books to read philosophies eating right all these other things that you know are important for living um maurice white learned from ramsey lewis and you know obviously maurice white was uh had too many ideas to be uh you know a drummer in a group and had to go on his own way and we talked about and ramsey lewis talked about that in the book but even after that, the fact that Maurice White kept coming back to Ramsey Lewis, kept coming back to work with him, coming back to work on Ramsey Lewis's projects for years and years is just an incredible affinity. I can't think of any other example where, uh, you know, the the student, um, the disciple, so to speak, um, who would go on to do great things would come back and, you know, continue to work with the mentor throughout you know, for, for many years afterwards.
Maurice was a very um, gentle person and he was very quiet. And uh, when Ramsey invited him to start performing with him, he um, Ramsey said he would have his symbols arranged in front of him so that the audience couldn't even see him because he would he was so shy that he wouldn't um he he wouldn't you know step out and um so Ramsey used to always tell him you know you gotta lower the symbols and let people see you and he just didn't he just wouldn't do it and I think as when Aaron said when he got the kalimba and um and Ramsey said yeah you you should really play that and but you need to and he, he made him put the microphone in front of the stage that he had to walk up to it away from the drums. And um, I guess he was very uncomfortable doing it, but he finally did it. And that probably is kind of what started him with some confidence, you know, in his, um, his desire to grow and whatever he has, you know, his incredible success after that. to me, Jan, because you, you look at Maurice White with the sequence one-piece <laughs> jumpers and, you know, all the pyrotechnics and stuff, and you would not think that this was someone who had trouble getting there and let alone, it's just so special that to know that Ramsey Lewis was in part behind that, like, get out yeah. there. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. And then there's, of course, Sun Goddess, that uh, collaboration between uh, Ramsey Lewis and Earth, Wind and Fire that when I was younger, I thought it was an Earth, Wind and Fire song <laughs> until I realized, until I got the album. And I was like, oh, that's a Ramsey Lewis song. Um, but there was there was some of that even before that, um, just to go back to Charles Stepney for a second, um, who I, I absolutely just adore and just such a tragic uh, early loss for for music and, and his family, of course. Um, can you talk a little bit about that relationship uh, with Charles Stepney? Because it um, seems like a very important one, especially when uh, Minnie Ripperton comes into the fold and then Charles Stepney is producing that album and then Ramsey is in, and Minnie are sort of simultaneously recording Stepney's I mean, just brilliant pieces. So, you know, here's Charles Stepney, who was a classical composer, classical producer, classical arranger, who had to work in popular music and jazz. Here's Ramsey Lewis, a jazz improviser, a jazz musician who's very successful with a background and love for classical music. So when the two come together, it's completely magical. And I can only imagine how Charles Stepney must have felt to 
here are these compositions that he wrote, these very advanced, very sophisticated compositions, very different sort of compositions being performed and interpreted and improvised from a musician like Ramsey Lewis, who has such a great imagination, such a great sense of what these pieces uh, should all be about. To hear Charles Stepney with his ideas for electronics and electronic music and introducing that to someone like Ramsey Lewis, who had such an open mind and open ears for new possibilities to try things out. And the magical music that resulted is just incredible from this combination of them. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think I listened to some of the Rotary Connection stuff and again, just the stuff that he was doing with Minnie and, and Ramsey. And it's there's nothing that sounds like that. I mean, I, I think that's that's the that's the tough part of of Stepney. Like, gosh, who who knows where where that was going? But what he, what they were able to do together, it's it's like nothing you've heard. It's so incredible that these musical minds found each other: Charles Stepney, Ramsey Lewis, Minnie Ripperton, Maurice White. They all found each other at this time here in Chicago and created something that was so new and so unique. And 50 plus years later, people are starting to realize how it's even beyond what's being done today. And it's just so um, incredible to think about. Mm -hmm. One thing I was, um, I think it was Mother Nature's Son. I think think that's the Beatles one, right? Yeah. Yes. Where... uh, Charles uh, suggested to Ramsey that that he do some Beatles songs. And Ramsey said, you know, he just wasn't into it. I mean, he just, he didn't have, um, he thought a lot of the Beatles stuff, the early stuff was very kind of fluff stuff. And and so he just, he just wasn't into it. And, and But Charles kept saying, just let me try arranging some stuff. So in addition to his composing, he was a great arranger. And he um and and so Randy said, No, I'm really not into. He said, just let me try, just see what see what you think. And so finally he said, Okay. And he just couldn't believe that you know these things came out so beautifully. And um, so he was a wonderful arranger too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So interesting is they recorded it just a couple weeks after the White Album was released. So they're doing incredibly different new takes on Beatles compositions only a few weeks after these compositions, these this record is coming out. And that's incredible quick take on this work. Yeah. I mean, I think of even um on the Sun Goddess album, the second track, he's doing Living for the City. It's 1974. It's the same year Intervisions, well, the year after, I think, that Intervisions comes out. I mean, I think that's something really special about that time that we don't see as much today. Um, uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant does a cover of a Gregory Porter tune. It's, it's incredible. Uh, it's a mashup uh, of, a, of a thing that she does. And it was so refreshing because it's rare these days, at least in my observation, that peers are doing their peers work. And that seemed to not be the case uh in the seventies. And I mean, I think we're all so much better for it to hear 
you know, because we hear Ramsey Lewis do uh, Le Fleur on Come to My Garden, but then it's so different on his own record. I mean, it's just, um, I don't know. It, there's a certain gratification, I feel, that comes from being in tune with your peers. Yes. You know, Stevie Wonder uh, and him were got to be friends. And Stevie Wonder would come to Ramsey Lewis's sessions to bring his work to Ramsey Lewis. And this is Stevie Wonder at the height of his musical, artistic, commercial, popular success. And he's a guest on a Ramsey Lewis session. And I think that's indicative of the best musical colleagues and the esteem that they had for Ramsey Lewis. I think I think that's a great point. That's an amazing point. And we also see this uh, time that uh, Ramsey is now playing uh, synthesizers and 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 stretching out with different kinds of keyboards as well. And I would imagine that um, maybe Stevie Wonder's you know, had a little bit to do with that as well. Charles Stepney was the one mm. who really got Ramsey Lewis into electronics. And Charles Stepney was like, hey, let's check out this new gear here. And so he got, you know, Ramsey Lewis interested in all of this gear. And then, of course, Ramsey Lewis became very much uh, connected with the Fender Rhodes and would appear mm. in advertisements. And the Rhodes company was very good to him. But Ramsey Lewis always preferred the Steinway. The, mm -hmm. He was a Steinway artist, and that was, you know, his great, great love. As a musical, great love was the Steinway piano. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then speaking of collaboration, there's also his, I mean, just one of the best duets to ever do it, uh, his work with Nancy Wilson. Uh, well, it was beautiful duets, um, piano voice duets with mm -hmm. other musicians too, of course. But um, yeah, they just blended so well together and they were of such similar mindsets, musical mindsets and outlook on things that, um, and they had such great material. They were working with great people. I mean, those were some really great combinations that looking back, I'm surprised were not huge crossover hits on the level of Ramsey Lewis's earlier crossover hits. Mm, mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is also around the time that Ramsey Lewis starts uh, getting into this other career. He talks about um, Dr. Billy Taylor um, and his time at CBS Sunday Morning and being sort of a, a mentor to him as he uh, got into this other chapter of his life. He didn't stop recording, of course, um, and touring, but he... Uh, got into television and radio. When Ramsey Lewis got into television and radio, and again, yeah, he was mentored by people like Dr. Billy Taylor, but that was part of his openness, his whole idea of, okay, I'm going to try this, see what happens. And that was his attitude towards a lot of the music he did that was so successful. And then he just had that same attitude towards working in radio and television, but also too, along with that, let's just try this and see what happens. Part of it was also, even through all that, just being very devoted to the music, very devoted to telling the story of the music, very devoted to presenting the music with all of the dignity that it deserved. And mm -hmm. so while Ramsey Lewis was very open-minded to things, very open-minded to trying things, he was also very steadfast in 
preserving the music's dignity and its history and its heritage and what made it so important, so valuable to pass on to others. Mm-hmm. And Billy, Billy really um, helped Ramsey a lot in um, in in the media because Billy had been in television and radio and stuff for a long time, and Ramsey hadn't. And so he took a he he took a lot of um, advice from Billy, which is very very helpful, and you know it just helped um, his whole career in that department. Hmm. I mean, how ahead of his time? was Ramsey Lewis in that regard? Because when you think about it, this is before SiriusXM and YouTube and podcasts. And Ramsey Lewis, I mean, the platform that he had and what he was doing, he was kind of like what we would now call like an influencer, you know, when you or when you are a, a um, ambassador, like a media ambassador in a way or, so, or something along those lines. What, what would you say his impact was as a media personality? especially in jazz and having that that kind of reach. Um, yes, I think that's something that's very important for these young people who've grown up with YouTube and podcasts and all of this um, and, and social media and everything to realize that back in the 1980s, uh, back in the 1980s, back in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't so prevalent to see jazz on TV. Um, and there certainly, you couldn't go and get, you know, jazz videos at the click of a button on your laptop back then. So to present jazz musicians in these, um, different media, um, really took some effort. It really took some doing, it really took some dedication. And Ramsey Lewis had all of that dedication. He had all that doing, and he also had the personality for it as well. He had the, you know, the, because this is, you know, it's serious music, of course, and it's very uh, crucial music, but he has such an easygoing personality in presenting it. He had such an affable sense about presenting this very sophisticated music that that made him such an important influencer at a time when that was really necessary, because that was how the word was going to get out all over about this music to people who couldn't just go even to a concert because a lot of his radio audience was not able to go to uh, a concert hall because they didn't live in cities where there was this, um, you know, jazz community. Um, Cause this his radio and TV shows went all over the place. I mean, they went to stations far and wide. He was also very popular here in Chicago too. So, uh, you know, he was maintaining his, his local community as well. Um, but yes, I think that's something that uh, needs to be remembered, um, you know, for, like I say, young people, people in their 20s today who weren't around back then to know how important that was to get the message of jazz out there. Absolutely. I mean, I think about um, growing up in the 90s, I guess I'm Gen X. And so <laughs> I went to a performing arts high school, I would come home and put on BET because they had like the, they would show boys to men and this and that but they had bet on jazz. And, you know, I could turn on the cable station and see Jerry Allen and, and, and Ramsey Lewis, or, you know, and it was, you didn't see, as to your point, you just didn't see that before that really, you know, and for somebody like me who is part of the hip hop generation, I also heard Ramsey Lewis sampled in so much of the music, the sort of golden era 
of, of hip hop uh, in leaders of the new school, other hip hop artists. Jan, how how did Ramsey feel about hip hop and how did he feel about his music being sampled? Well, he, you know, there he always said that hip hop, he felt kind of evolved because um, arts in the, edu- in the in the schools was cut so much. And so people, creative musicians or, or youngsters um, would find another outlet to, you know, to express themselves. But in terms of, of them sampling him, I don't think he ever, it was only when somebody mentioned it, you know, that he was aware of it. I don't think, uh, we didn't really listen to a lot of hip hop. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's an incredible testament to his, you know, talent that that has been sampled so widely now. Mm-hmm. And grace on his part that he wasn't like actively pursuing like lawsuits, <laughs> you know, because <and> <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of that, a lot of sampling going on and yeah. not maybe, maybe not clearing everything. <laughs> Probably, <so. laughs> Probably not. Uh, Aaron, what would you say? Uh, did, did Ramsey talk to you about uh, in the course of writing and talking, did he talk to you about that particular part of his legacy and how his music has lived on through this sort of other avenue? Yes, I, I, you know, he did uh, bring it up. And um, he also brought up the whole aspect of publishing and rights and copyrights and payment. And I don't want to give away the punchline um, here, but um, he he was, he was fine with it. But, you know, hip hop uh, wasn't music that he, you know, he listened to a lot of different stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, hip hop was not on top of his playlist, so to speak, because mm-hmm. he was listening to so many other things from all over that. Yeah. Um, but also too, I mean, urban nights, um, you know, which was the more, well, that was more contemporary R and B rather than hip hop, but they certainly were very conscious of what was going on in hip hop. And that was, you know, a group that his sons were uh, leading in the 1990s. So he had his finger on the pulse of popular music changes into the 90s, for sure. Mm-hmm. And and while he wasn't sampling, I mean, you know, he was doing his own versions of, you know, like you said, Stevie Wonder and the stylistics and sort of being a very ahead of the game in terms of just uh, uh, covering the... Uh, contemporary music summer breeze that's one of my favorite versions of 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 summer breeze is doing it live on the uh on the whirly or the roads i can't remember so while it's not sampling there's there's it's like in the mix of it in in some way i feel like well ramsey lewis was always aware of what made for a great song and Mm he was never felt that there should be any barriers to what he could do in terms of jazz interpretations. And he recognized in the early seventies, how great uh, those R and B songs were as compositions that they weren't, you know, just a record by the stylistics or, um, you know, just a record by Stevie wonder, but these were just great songs that could be taken in different directions. If, somebody had the right ideas for how to do it and still retain the emotional immediacy that the songs themselves conveyed to listeners. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about dynamics in the book, even as early as uh, Ms. Mendelssohn and how important uh, dynamics feel 
getting along on stage, uh, so many of the things that are maybe away from the sheet, you know, away, uh, but the heart and soul of things. Jan, I, I'm sure you you can speak to that as well, just how there were other things that were so important. Yeah, and that dynamics was just the most important, I think, in his in his sound. Um, he just liked leaving space and then building a song. And he did that not only in a song, but in his set, you know, for if he was for a concert or probably even how he um, sequenced an album. You know, he, he had it. It was very important to him to kind of be the person who did that. And uh, and he, you know, he, he just had a feel for how it should, the highs and lows and how it should go. Mm-hmm. I just have a couple of more questions for you both, and then I'll, I'll let you go. The, the cover of the book has this beautiful quote from President Barack Obama. We talked about it a little bit earlier, Jan, but about uh, the symphony that he had done. But uh, Mr. Lewis had spent a lot, a, a significant amount of time with the president, whether it was physical time or or uh, fundraising or um, how important was that relationship to to both of you, really, um, at a time where you know we were we were making history with this young senator from Chicago. I mean, that what was that like? Yeah, it was it was really very special. And um the then Senator Obama Ramsey did some um fundraisers for and um and it was just always very impressed with him and and you know he, he you could just tell meeting him that he was going to be a lot more than just a senator. And so when he did get to the White House, uh Ramsey said, "Well, we want to go and meet him in the Oval Office and and so it was arranged. Our accountant actually was his personal accountant. And so uh, that's why he was able to kind of arrange us to get to the White House. But um, that was very special um, time. And yeah, the president was always very um, supportive and, you know, just a, a real gentleman the whole time. I just really enjoyed the times I was in his presence. Mm-hmm. I want to add one thing about um, Ramsey Lewis and uh, Barack Obama. When Barack Obama ran for Senate uh, and in the primary, very early in the primary, uh, Ramsey Lewis was one of his first supporters. And this was before anybody knew that Barack Obama would even win the primary to be a U.S. senator. Mm. Um, Once it looked like Barack Obama was going to win, then everybody jumped on the bandwagon. You know, everybody wanted to uh, be a part of the Barack Obama, you know, steamroll. And Mm -hmm. but Ramsey Lewis was there before any of them. He was there Mm -hmm. doing fundraising concerts for Barack Obama early in the Senate primary. He knew uh, right away that uh, Barack Obama was going to be a very important person in uh, Illinois and American and world politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Ramsey Lewis deserves a, a lot of credit for uh, being there for Barack Obama before you know <laughs> any any other celebrity that you can name who or any name person here in Chicago who jumped on the bandwagon because at the time you know Ramsey Lewis at the time Barack Ob- at the time Barack Obama was thought of as you know a progressive law professor, state senator who, you know, was considered a bit too 
you know, intellectual to be a U.S. senator, had, you know, too many progressive ideas. And so the the big money people, the big name people were not really behind Barack Obama's Senate candidacy at that point, except for Ramsey Lewis. Ramsey Lewis was there from the beginning. And I think um, that's something that people should really know. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. Because, yeah, I remember the, yeah, once people caught the wave, then it was a, uh... It was a wrap, but that's a very important piece that, like you said, I don't think a lot of people know. Jan, toward the end of the book, uh, Ramsey talks about um, slowing down, touring less, um, you know, spending up much more time with his two best friends, (laughs) (laughs) you and his Steinway. (laughs) Um, What were those years like? Well, he retired in 2018. Well, officially, I suppose, but um, he, I think he was just done. You know, he had been 60 years on the road or whatever it was. And, and uh, he was just tired of airports and hotels. And so he just wanted to be off the road. And, um, you know, I was just so happy for him that he could and that, um, uh, we were financially set enough that he could retire because it doesn't happen for all musicians. And um, so he really enjoyed his retirement, although, you know, he was still called for interviews. And and then in um, during COVID, we did the Saturday salons. And that was just he and I in the, you know, in the living room with the Steinway. And those were really special. I was so happy that he got to do those solo ones because he always wanted to do a solo tour and I think a solo album and he never did either. And I don't know why, um, but um, I was just so happy that he could do the the Saturday salons and, and people hear, you know, just how beautifully he, he played and, um, uh, the quality of it certainly wasn't a studio quality, but you really got to see him up close and personal. And and I I enjoyed it, every single one of them. And, and you know, we we had a great life. Um, I miss him, but, um, you know, I just appreciate every day I had with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you both, um, what do you think, because we think we, we've talked about his legacy as the teacher and the student and how he remained both throughout his life. What do you think is his hope for this book? And what's your hope for this fantastic book? Well, I'm just happy that people get to really see him because he was a very private person and he didn't want to do this book for a long time. And um, and I think he just has so much to say and was such a great example of, of just what a quality musician should be, what a quality man should be, how he conducted himself his entire life. Um, he, he just was just a, a quality man. I, and, and, uh, and, I, and that's how I am so happy that this book portrays him that way. 
because um, it really is, as I said earlier when I was choking out, that it is the book that he would be very, very proud of. And I know that. Mm-hmm. Aaron? I believe that people could come away from the book learning that somebody can be a, an accomplished musician, a brilliant musician, a very successful musician, and still be a very generous, humble, giving, kind person. I hope that people come away with the book uh, learning about the importance of being open-minded to new ideas and the importance of staying with your dreams throughout your life. Wow. The title of the book is Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in Music uh, by Ramsey Lewis, co-authored by Aaron Cohen. I, I just can't thank both of you enough for sitting and talking to me. I wish I wish we could be, I mean, we really could just keep going because- <laughs> Well, thanks for taking- I guess I, guess I, do, oh. I do have one more question, um, Aaron. Um, we talked about six decades, well, we've all talked about six decades of work and we've talked about over 80 albums. The, how, how did you, <laughs> how did you choose? <laughs> There's a discography in the back of the book. Um, how on earth did you do that? Well, <laughs> one, one of the great one of the great things about Ramsey Lewis is six decades of music, and he didn't just stay in one spot. He could have done well just going out there, playing the in crowd, playing you know Sun Goddess over and over again. But no, he kept doing new things, different things, but still wanting to you know keep the audience happy as well. So he was playing for himself and the audience. Uh, for a long time, you know, I'm, I'm a, I love collecting records, and that's part of what I do. So, uh, when I write about a subject, I need to get every recording, you know, that I can find from whoever I'm writing about. So that meant getting a lot of Ramsey Lewis records, which was, you know, certainly a pleasure, a lot of fun. And I didn't want the discography to just be a list of names of records and who played on them, but I wanted to. Uh, pick about 25 or 30 of the ones that I liked and and what made them important, what made these particular records important, or just to me personally, something that I enjoyed listening to a lot. And so that's what I just did was just narrow down the 80 to about 20 that I found to be the most historically important, the most influential, or ones that I just happened to enjoy the most. Because also when I would tell people I'm working on a book with Ramsey Lewis, they would say to me, oh, you know, I saw there's 80 or 100 records of his out there. The first questions they would ask me, which records should I get? And so I had to say why. I had to say, okay, well, if you're going to go and go to your record store, and there are still record stores that people can still go to or shop online, as a lot of people do, I'm told, um, here's what you should start with in terms of the essentials, because that was a question that people kept asking me. It's like, wow all these Ramsey Lewis records, which ones should I start with? And it's like, well, start with these and here's why. The breadth of what he was doing aesthetically, I mean, it's it's mind-blowing that someone my son's age, who's 14, he has Ramsey Lewis records in his room, <laughs> you know? And it, it, it's, right. it's so, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's really incredible to think that if you were to pick up a copy of uh, an early record, like Bach to the Blues, and listen to the music and even how they present themselves on the cover and then pick up Solongo from 10 years later 
<laughs> and it's completely different in terms of music, in terms of mood, even in terms of cover art and how they present themselves. Um, you know, I haven't really changed much at all in the last 10 years. I'm still doing what I've always done without really much. But the Ram Ramsey Lewis in those, you know, just those years, huge difference, artistic difference. And that's just such a wonderful thing to listen to. Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in Music, available. It's available everywhere, uh, wherever wherever books are sold. Um, yes. Oh, but I should add uh, that June 22nd in Chicago, we're going to have a big celebration for Ramsey Lewis, a big concert at Millennium Park downtown. And that's at 6.30 um, on June 22nd. And then just before that, at 4.30 in the afternoon at the Chicago Cultural Center, which is right across the street, um, we're going to have a panel discussion about Ramsey Lewis. So um, come for the panel discussion at 4.30 and we'll be talking about uh, Ramsey Lewis and stay for the concert at 6.30. Uh, you have to come to Chicago to, to experience all of this, but I encourage everybody listening to come to Chicago on June 22nd to celebrate Ramsey Lewis. And it's also the 88th birthday of Mr. Ramsey Lewis. And so... Um, a, a, a lot to to miss for sure and a lot to celebrate because of the enormous generosity of, of his life and artistry. And I'm just so grateful and grateful to you both. And cool. thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for thank you. Uh, having us. Milestones is a production of WBGO Studios. Production assistance by Corey Goldberg. Theme music by Riley Glasper. Listen on your smart speaker by saying, play Milestones, celebrating the culture. And if you're enjoying this content, please be sure to subscribe and review this episode on Apple Podcasts. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.